Welcome to this episode of the Engineering Project Management Podcast, a podcast dedicated to helping project managers sharpen their PM skills. What does it take to manage offshore wind projects, something that we often don't hear a lot about? I'm your host, Anthony Fasano, and in this episode of the Engineering Project Management Podcast, I will be talking with Alejandro Jimenez, Head of Project Development for Global Offshore Wind Projects at U.S. Solutions, about how he manages offshore wind projects and what are some of the opportunities and risks in this really exciting industry. And this was an awesome conversation because a lot of times when you think about a project, you know, you think about a team of people, you know, a couple of things going on with your project. When you're dealing with global offshore wind projects, you're dealing with so many different potential risks and opportunities and moving parts in these projects from where you can even put the project in the first place to all the potential issues with like getting the equipment out into the sea and things of that nature. And in some cases, as Alejandro will talk about, dealing with more than a thousand people on your projects, both locally in that local language potentially, and then internally with your team. So really, really exciting stuff. And I'm excited to share the conversation with you today. Let's jump right in. All right, now I want to welcome our guest onto the show for today, Alejandro Jimenez, Head of Project Development for Global Offshore Wind Projects at U.S. Solutions. Alejandro, welcome to the Engineering Project Management Podcast. Hi, Anthony. A pleasure to be here. Alejandro, before we get started uh, talking about project management, let's talk a little bit about your career journey. You're from Spain originally. You've lived in London at one time for about five years. You have degrees both in civil and mechanical engineering. Take us through your kind of path to how you got to where you are today. I started studying mechanical engineering. I always had clear I wanted to be an engineer. But, you know, when the time comes, similarly to a lot of us, I guess, is you are not sure which field of engineering you want to specialize in. So I went for mechanical engineering. I said, okay, that's what I want to do. I do like it, but when I was finishing the, the degree, I realized that maybe a bigger projects, that's what I like. I mean, bigger projects with bigger, I mean, like civil projects, such as, you know, highways, dams, all these sort of stuff, airports, like they are bigger in scale, not necessarily in complexity, obviously. And I said, okay, what do I do? Should I go for a master's in, into mechanical engineering to complete my education? Or should I do one step back? Yes, to do what I want to do. I say, okay, let's do civil engineering. When I finished mechanical engineering, because I realized about that when it was just one year to be done with mechanical engineering. So I said, okay, let's finish it uh, just in case. <laughs> so I did it. And then I came back to civil engineering and I did civil engineering. And when I was finishing it, that's when I started working because uh, I got an opportunity from an oil and gas company in London, uh, Sipem, uh, which at that time was part of any the oil and gas company. They offered me a job to do offshore energy engineering in there. I was still finishing my degree, but I said, okay, you're a mechanical engineer. You already have your degree. You can start with us if you want to. So I said, okay, let's do it. So I started working whilst I was finishing civil engineer. And in the middle, I took on the EATUS on civil engineering because I did a master's too in project management. So not that I wanted, but I mean, I was lucky to join a company such a moment that they were like, they had the means, you know, to offer further education to the graduates. And they offered me a master, so I, I went for it. Yeah, I finished the master's, also civil engineering. And when people ask me, which uh, are you an engineer? I say, yes, I'm a civil engineer. I don't go with all of this story because it's too long, but yeah. <laughs> Tell me how you found solar. How'd you end up getting into wind and solar? How'd that happen? 
the moment I landed on uh, the offshore energy uh, industry uh, with oil and gas at the beginning, the first two years in Saipan, I immediately fell in love with it. It's, it's really amazing for an engineer, the, the complexity, the, the, the size of the projects, how many things are going on, and then you have the opportunity to go there to, the, to see the projects being built. It's incredible. So I said, okay, this is what I want to do. But then there were a lot of opportunities coming in offshore wind, and it was getting a, a big momentum. And at some point I said, okay, first professionally, because there are going to be a lot of opportunities, but also, I mean, personally, I prefer to be part of the renewable energy industry than the oil and gas industry. Nothing against the oil and gas industry, but was my preference. So there was a very good opportunity coming from Iberdrola, Scottish Power, in the UK, and I took it. And that's how I landed into the renewable energy industry. It was like seven and a half years ago. So I started an offshore wind at that moment and up to this point. I mean, uh, now I'm not working in Iberdrola anymore uh, at US Solutions, but I'm in the same industry and different roles, different experiences, different countries. But yeah, that's, that's to summarize how I landed in there. So tell us about offshore wind projects. You know, what do they entail for engineers that are listening? Maybe they aren't that familiar with those types of projects. What are the kinds of things that go into those projects? I mean, a lot of people know what's offshore wind, but uh, I mean, yes, for the basics, uh, uh, offshore wind is quite similar in terms of, I mean, if, if you're an investor and you're looking for what's the difference between onshore and offshore wind, the first concept is that offshore wind is, it's, the wind reaches a higher and more constant speed than on land because there are no barriers. So it's more predictable. Basically, the projects are more, I won't say easy to finance because maybe I enter muddy waters in there, but I say that they are uh, quite easy to organize and to get a financing if you have a some project. So what entails an offshore wind project? They are very long, large projects. They can be understood as long, depending on what you compare them with. There are large sums of money involved, like CapEx and the OPEX figures are very, very large. There are a lot of stakeholders involved, tier one contractors, the developer, uh, investors, uh, government uh, bodies, etc. For me, the biggest two characteristics are the time for the project. You can easily go into 10 to 12 years of a project, not execute. I mean, of course, you have the leasing stage, which is two years, the leasing of the seabed, then four years for consenting, two years for the financial close, and then another three years for installation. And then you have, I mean, your, your project is built and you have it in operation. We're trying now to reduce the consenting stage because it's unnecessarily long, but that's another discussion. But yeah, they're quite long. And the money involved with this project is quite large. The average in 2021, look into my notes for this uh, talk now, it's like 2.8 million US dollars per each megawatt. So we're talking about a one gigawatt offshore wind farm. We could be talking in a range of 2.5 to 3K million dollars per project. Let's go back first, just like you said, with the offshore. So in terms of where they put the wind, where they put these structures, you said the seabed. Is it an island? Is it? How do you secure property? How does that work? Tell us where they actually put the wind structures. Well, the typical offshore wind farm that you can find, and still they are the most typical ones being planned, are the fixed uh, foundations. Basically, this means that your seabed is no, your water depth is not normally not bigger than uh, deeper than 50 meters. So you, in terms of technology and the capex that you're spending on that, you can put like different solutions for a fixed foundation, such a jacket foundation, a monopile foundation, suction bucket. So the turbine goes fixed into the seabed. However, we are living now the boom of the floating offshore wind. There are a lot of areas with very good wind resource where water depths 
won't allow for fixed foundations, but for floating foundations, the issue was the technology. I mean, it's not the same. It's I would say it's a little bit more complex to have a floating foundation and make it work and to be reliable and to have a fixed foundation. So there was a challenge there, but there are quite a few technologies at the moment which are reliable and they are already proven in projects which make floating offshore wind uh, viable. Uh, however, the costs are also going down. The cost of a floating offshore wind project is bigger than a fixed project, but we are going to see a lot of floating projects in the next few years. I'm from Spain, and in Spain, we cannot have fixed offshore, we have fixed foundations for offshore wind, at least in the areas where you can build offshore. So we need to go for floating. And the same is happening with a lot of very interesting areas, such as California, Japan, et cetera, et cetera. So when you do install these into the seabed, you mentioned that the process of getting permission in the beginning, right? So it's like the country that it's closest to, or who's the governing body there? <laughs> the country who owns the, those waters, they can go through different processes, but a typical process is to say, okay, we want to develop offshore wind. So let's uh, do a, a seabed lease for different companies, see who is going to be leasing uh, the seabed to build offshore wind. And then you enter into different processes, such as once a company, let's say, look at the east coast of the united states we had recently the new year bite uh, lease uh, auction and several companies they went into that competitive uh, process they won the rights to have the lease to lease those areas uh, basically so they can lease. so immediately i mean you need to interface with the government bodies who are dealing with those areas in order to get the permits to build offshore wind and i'm not talking about the tariff or the grid connection because that's it's linked, but it's a different story. I'm just talking about the area. The area where you could put it. So the initiative is is done by the government. Then the government, we're seeing the same in India right now. A few months ago, India said, we want to develop offshore wind in the south of India, in the Tamil Nadu area. These are the zones that we are going to be developing offshore wind. We want to hear you out. And we are going to be launching a competitive uh, tender auction for leasing this event. So is there a min- like a distance that they have to be offshore? Like, what's the distance? Technology-wise, if you can do it, whatever is feasible, and next 100 meters from the coast, you probably can do it. But you need to take into consideration environmental and social aspect. So if you put it too close to the coast, you are going to have a big visual impact. That is, a lot of people are not going to be happy about that. So you want to put it far away from that. Then the winds, I mean, if you go farther away from the coast, probably you're going to have more, more reliable winds in terms of direction and consistency. Then also the coast environmentally is more sensible than the when you go deeper into the, well, farther into the sea, you have more protected areas, you have uh, the, all the fishery, fishing areas too, etc. So you can see when you see a map with the sonification of all the different social and environmental aspects, you normally see that if you go farther from the coast, it's better. However, you need to have an equilibrium of, uh, if you go very far, then you need to go for floating wind normally rather than fixed and also the connectivity to the grid is an issue if you go 100 kilometers away from the coast you need to do 100 kilometers export cables with all the problems that entails and the cost massive costs on average 30 kilometers could be a typical offshore wind farm away from the coast so what are some of the risks of these projects so if we're talking about similar projects which are not exactly offshore wind, the size of these projects is at large that planning is key. So you take the risk of not taking everything into consideration. And then if we go into the specific challenges that we're facing in the industry right now of these projects, 
I mean, of course, reaching FID is always a challenge for a project with all, all this size. But during the execution stage, the projects are more tangible. They're out of tier one contractors and their multi-million contracts working together. It concludes with the offshore installation, but that, the, the offshore installation is the conclusion of a few years of, of planification, onshore construction, et cetera. Technical challenges are huge. Health and safety is paramount. Uh, at sea, there are a lot of things that could go wrong, and we don't take these issues uh, slightly. They, 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 they are very serious. And any unexpected problem, even let's say you need to install a turbine and you're missing a, a few key pieces, even bolts, you're missing bolts, you need to wait to the bolts are procured and brought from onshore. And you need to put all of the parts of the project on hold for maybe one day. And the daily cost of one of these vessels could be, I mean, the large, large vessels are could reach the vessel spread half a million per day. I guess when you think about it, there's really... The sea is one of the most variable things in nature. So when you're dealing with that kind of variability on a project like this, it can be extremely challenging. And when we talk about project management, you've worked on a lot of these projects that are very complex. They're multi-million dollars. Like you said, it could be hundreds of millions of dollars. What are some of the project management related challenges that one might face on a project like this? Risk and opportunities management could be one. I mean, I've been... 10, 11 years working industry. There are a lot of project managers with more experience than, than me. I mean, not in the industry, but in other industries. So probably they know better. But what I see is that you tend to look to the risks very carefully, but you overlook the opportunities sometimes. And opportunities are there. Um, if you really put careful planning into looking into all opportunities, you can easily save millions in one project. You can reduce the schedule of one project. You can optimize the project up to the extent that it's easier. You get a project to be easier just due to the opportunities. And then, of course, uh, the program management, uh, planning, uh, proper planning, having people who is looking to the planning. Also, also cost, cost control. Planning. What we call the project office, which gets involved with the costs management, program management. I think that's one of the, the main foundations for a, a successful project. And you know them, but in this ones, I think it's even more important due to the doing a lot of gears work being concluded in one year of offshore installation, one and a half years or so, and everything needs to be perfectly tuned and technical, contractual, commercial, everything needs to be working just fine. So careful planning is key. What's interesting about that is I think when you think about project management, a lot of times we're talking about, you know, the things that could go wrong, scope creeps, scheduling, budgeting. But I like your comment there. Like if you optimize your projects and you, you know, when you do multiple projects, you can start to figure out ways to do them better and faster and maybe put some systems in place to make the projects go smoother. And I think as a project manager, we should all be looking at trying to optimize our projects so that we can continue to get better and more efficient at managing projects because budgets are tight. There's lots of risks. And, and the, more, the more optimized you can be, the better you can be as a project manager. Let's talk a little bit about career development, Alejandro. What recommendations do you have for someone working in, let's say, wind industry in terms of growing their careers based on your career journey? Like, what are some of the things you've done to try to grow? Offshore wind is such an exciting industry. That's how I see it. So my first recommendation is to be eager to learn more and more, to go offshore when the opportunity is there, because that's where you learn the, the most when you really see things happening. Get as much involved as possible. 
And I think this recommendation is might not be needed for people who is already in the industry because most people I know in the industry are very passionate about about this. So there are a lot of opportunities in this industry. So if you get very involved, you will find opportunities yourself. You don't really need to scratch a lot. It's already there. I have to say too that people management skills are important. Those projects entail a lot of people, not just from your colleagues uh, who work daily with you, but a lot of stakeholders, uh, large groups of people working together to get it done. You can easily, if you are the, the developer, the, the consultants, the contractors, the, the offshore people, all of them uh, doing the execution stage, you can very easily have 1,500 people working uh, in the project simultaneously. So people matching skills are very important. Go get, you know, your colleagues, your industry. Then also go to industry seminars, go to conferences. We can. The market is booming with new jobs and having a good network is going to open out of doors for new exciting opportunities. And in terms of the wind industry, it sounds like there's going to be a lot of jobs in this industry in the next few years for engineers. Yeah, it is. Uh, the industry is at the point, well, this is still young. This already solid knowledge and organizational base to make, make things easy for those who really want to be in. And we need professionals. We really need professionals. And actually, I want to say that one of the main challenges from the industry probably is going to be the lack of professionals. There is a, a lot of demand, and I don't think there are enough professionals to, to satisfy or such demand. So if any anyone doing an engineering degree at this moment or anyone trying to change the, the industry is wants to get into an industry which is solid and there's not going to be any problem with getting the job, <laughs> this industry is definitely one. What would you say like is the best degree to go into wind with? You have mechanical, you have civil, does it matter or how does it? To get in, we typically see civil engineers, naval engineers, mechanical engineers, but also I have seen a lot of electrical engineers. If you think about it, I mean, offshore wind, you generate energy, so you electrical engineers. Any engineering degree is good, as long as then you get the skills whilst working in the industry. I think there's room for everyone. Even communication, uh, well, the telco, uh, SCADA engineers, uh, everything, I mean, everything. But the typical ones that I've seen the most is naval, civil, a mechanical. One other question I want to ask you, because, you know, we get questions from a lot of engineers who want to work internationally, whether it's maybe they're in the U.S., they want to work international. In terms of like language, you're from Spain, you obviously speak very good English. Do a lot of these projects, these global projects, I would imagine they're done in English? Yeah, English is the language for us. Uh, when you, of course, you don't need to, you need to take into account that if you are, for example, doing an offshore wind project in Vietnam, you need people managing the sites who can speak the local language. But for, if we're talking about project management, I mean, if you don't speak English, sorry for my friends, but you're screwed. If it's someone in the US, let's say, and they're going to do a project in another country, like India or something, like you mentioned earlier, they're probably going to need someone on their team that can speak to the ground crews in the local languages, correct? Correct. Normally, you do this on a project, I mean, project per project basis. So if you're going to be developing a project in India, you need to build a, a strong team in there who can communicate with, because it's not only white collar jobs, it's blue collar. A lot of, most of the works are blue collar and a lot of them are just going to be speaking the local language. So you, of course, need to communicate effectively with them. Listen, these are very complex projects. Obviously, there's lots of things going on. Like Alejandro has explained to us, you have a lot of risks inherent in these projects. 
But I think as a project manager, as an engineer, these projects sound very exciting to me because there are a lot of different things to think about. There are a lot of opportunities, like Alejandro said. You really have to be a leader of people as well and be able to manage people effectively, like Alejandro said, because you're dealing with, there could be a thousand plus people involved in one project. And these could be people in different languages, different locations, doing different things. So really these wind projects can be really requires a lot of project management. And if you can optimize it in any sense, it's really the way to go. So what we're going to do is we're just going to take a very short break and then we're going to come back and we're going to wrap up with our PM pitfall. All right, we are back with Alejandro Jimenez, head of project development for Global Offshore Wind talking a lot about offshore wind projects, how complex they are. So Alejandro, just to kind of wrap us up for today, what is one of the biggest PM pitfalls or challenges that you've seen working as a project manager and what can project managers do to try to avoid that or or deal with that? I can think about this, no matter how good you plan for a project and for things to happen smoothly and sound, PMs end up working much more than we expect during the critical phases of the project. And we tend to underestimate the level of involvement that project managers are going to have at certain stages of the project. Because in an ideal world, I mean, you, a good project manager is, is good when uh, handing things and moving the work around and like not doing micromanagement. And that's how it needs to be done. But up to some point, and when there is an issue during a critical part of the project, the PM is not going to look aside. We are going to get involved. And we always underestimate that. So my recommendation is done. A team of PMs is never small enough during the execution stage, of course, up to some extent. And you always need to have the right people in the right place, or otherwise you're going to end up managing things from a position where you don't want to be. So I will summarize this. The PM who is being involved in doing all the work and all the teams surrounding these guys, don't leave the team to get shorter when you think there's going to be less work because that's not going to happen. The the moment when that's going to happen is when the project is handed over. A lot of times as project managers, we do underestimate the effort that it's going to take on our own part, right? We're thinking like our team will handle it. We'll manage the team. The team's going to get it done. But things happen on projects, things go wrong. You have to jump in, you have to talk to clients, you have to come out to the site and try to fix something or look at something. Somebody can't figure it out and everyone's looking at you to get it done, to to solve the problem. So I definitely understand what you're saying, Alejandro. And I think that good project managers assume that they're going to have to get involved in their projects. They may have to get heavily involved in their projects at times. And I think it really goes back to what you said earlier is your ability to interact with people effectively is going to help you to be a great project manager because you will have to get pulled into your projects. But if you can manage people, lead people effectively, you may be able to get more help from them, which is going to be very beneficial in the long run. So listen, it was great to hear from Alejandro. It was very interesting to hear about these offshore wind projects. They are going to be a lot of them going forward. It's going to be a busy industry. There are a lot of jobs out there if you're interested in getting into the industry. And it sounds like you can pretty much get into that industry with any type of engineering degree as long as you're willing to learn kind of on the job and progress. There's opportunities. So Alejandro, thank you so much for spending some time with us here on the Engineering Project Management Podcast. Thank you very much, Anthony. A pleasure to be here.
I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Alejandro. It's really interesting to think about how to manage projects in these really big global offshore wind projects, but also how you might apply some of that to the projects you work on if you're not in that industry. And I really liked what Alejandro said about optimizing your projects. As a project manager, it's so important to think about the processes that you use repeatedly and how you can capture those and replicate them on other projects. That is something that will really truly make you successful as a project manager. Please remember, you can find the show notes for this episode at engineeringpmpodcast.com. That's engineeringpm for project management, podcast.com. There you will find a summary of the key points discussed in today's episode, as well as links to any of the resources, websites, or books mentioned during this episode. And until next time, I wish you the best in all of your engineering project management endeavors. 